0: Welcome to Into the Breach, a reps and warranties policy podcast by Brian O'Keefe and Jenna Usenheimer, partners and co-leaders of the transactional underwriting Council practice at Seiforth Shaw, interviewing leaders from the industry and exploring the latest developments, market trends, and news impacting RWI and the transactional risk insurance markets
1: Welcome to Into the Breach. Uh, This is Brian O'Keefe, the host of your podcast. I'm joined by my co-host Jenna Usenheimer. How are you doing, Jenna?
2: I'm pretty good. How are you, Brian?
1: I'm doing very well, thank you. And uh, the show is going international again today, Jenna. We have a guest who uh, originally was from outside the United States. Uh, This guest is Neil Reenan, a partner at Latham & Watkins. And Neil is from Ireland, which I also have an affinity for, since Brian O'Keefe is a very
2: who would have guessed.
1: I, I never would have yeah. guessed that. <laughs> yeah, I know. I I've actually never asked you this, Neil. Where is your uh, where are your relatives from in Ireland?
3: Uh, my mom's family is from Dublin, the capital, and my dad's family is from a small town called Dundalk, which is about 50 miles north of Dublin, just south of the border between uh, the Republic and, uh, Northern Ireland.
1: Okay. All right. My family was actually from County Mayo out on the, uh, Western part of, uh, of Ireland. I did do a trip there once and saw where they were all from. And uh, we had a a relative up until a couple of years ago who still lived back there. And, uh, I, I went and visited him and it was sort of a Wild time. That'll be a different different podcast. We'll talk about that that episode. But uh, <laughs> Jenna, you, you said you've been to Ireland too, right?
2: Yes, I was to Ireland when I was studying abroad in London, and I went with my friends, our stupid college friends, um, up for St. Patrick's Day. But it was the year of Foot and Mouth or Hoof and Mouth with the livestock, so it was very. It was not the normal St. Patrick's Day, but um, it was still really fun and. The thing that I remember the most is that everybody was wasted on the flight from England to Dublin and the flight home. (laughs) Whereas like when you go to Vegas, Everybody's drunk on the way there, but everybody is like sleeping on the way back. With Ireland, they were drunk in both
1: directions. Well, that might say something, huh? Yeah,
2: I don't know. <laughs> that was my experience, at least.
1: Great, great. Well, thank you very much, Neil, for joining us today. We're really, uh, we're really excited to have you on the podcast today. And uh, the topic of today's show is is looking at reps and warranty insurance, but from uh, really from the buy side uh, perspective, in both the buy side. Council perspective, which is what uh, Neil does, and also the uh, the sort of insured perspective, who's who he represents. But um, before we get into that, perhaps Neil, you want to just uh, talk a little bit about your uh, professional background and, uh, and and how you got involved in in this area of the law.
3: Sure. Uh, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Uh, as you noted, I represent primarily private equity funds and their portfolio companies. Uh, Most often on the buy side, but uh, when they come to sell, do those uh, transactions as well. Uh, Handle a a wide variety of transactions, but mostly mergers, acquisitions, divestitures. And uh, about 10 years ago, uh, we started to see... um, a real uh, focus by some of the insurers to uh, to redevelop this space. It had been moribund for a long time where the premiums were uh, generally viewed as so expensive uh, as to not make it attractive. And, uh, you know, I don't know what it was within the companies, but they, they saw the potential here. And I think the incredible growth we've seen uh, where it's, you know, grown to maybe half of all transactions now involve some form of rapid warranty policy uh, is just testament to the, you know, creativity and uh, foresight of uh, a lot of people working in the space.
1: Yeah, I, I think we, you know, we both saw that growth. And I had started at this and working with you and others at Kirkland as, as buy-side counsel. And it struck me, you know, at one point in time, it was a pretty small minority of deals had it. And then, it felt like just about every deal was having it, or a lot of deals were having it, and it was really sort of driving, uh, you know, driving the 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 deal and driving the transaction in that in that way. And it, it really has been a, an incredible growth for the buy side lawyers to be watching this happening.
3: Sure, and and uh, I think you're right. In certain segments of the market now, it's expected that you will have it. Uh, sellers do not expect to have to stand behind. Uh, the reps and warranties, and as you know, Brian, the evolution uh, started where you know initially a lot of the insurers were focused on the sellers having some skin in the game, right? In this, in the sense of bearing some of the self-insured retention or, or deductible under the policy, and more and more deals now have no seller uh, skin in the game, and we have not seen meaningful price differences for those two types of policies, which tells me that the carriers got comfortable that uh, uh, companies were still, um, you know, acting in good faith in terms of negotiating and disclosing against the reps.
1: Right. No, I think I think that's 100% right. And um, I think that uh, you know, what might be interesting to talk about with you, Neil, as well is you know, you're you're on the buy side or uh, occasionally the sell side, and you know, a lot of our listeners are uh, folks who work at the insurers or work at the uh, the brokers, um, and you know, perhaps just hearing you know things that, that you think the insurers uh, could improve on, things that could be done differently, really from a buy side uh, from a buy side lawyer's perspective. I often when talking to the insurers um, i sometimes think there's a gap of, of knowledge and actually talking to just buy side lawyers about you know things they're seeing and how they think the product uh the product or the process could be better
3: sure well kudos for raising it brian because it's always important to talk to your customers right and for a uh, carrier to be successful in this space understanding uh, the needs and concerns of uh, private equity funds who are heavy, heavy users of the product uh, is important. Um, in the early days, there were maybe three carriers to to kind of choose from. Uh, now there have been so many new entrants into the space, and a number of those entrants have distinguished themselves by being uh, easy to to deal with. So, you know, to answer your question, what does that look like? Uh, you know, a, a couple of things. Uh, one is uh, the diligence process is very important. And you know, it's obviously important from the carriers that you represent, uh, Brian and Jana, uh, in terms of, you know, they need to do their due diligence on the risks that they're underwriting, they need to understand the company. Uh, and from the uh, from the buy side, um, uh, client's perspective, uh, they a client's perspective—they need a carrier or a broker who is understanding uh, the nature of the business and the risks. Um, it, 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 as early carriers uh, started in the in the space, there was a tendency to treat companies the same, and they're really very different. And the risks that uh, are relevant in a manufacturing business are going to be completely different. Than a healthcare business or a financial service business, um, and those sorts of things. And so, having uh, sophisticated counsel on the insurer side doing diligence that can really uh, have a deep understanding of how businesses are, are different and how the legal risks uh, that they come with. Uh, are different from an underwriting standpoint is hugely critical. And it really does distinguish uh, because I've been in many conversations with our clients and they will generally look to us uh, to say, who should we be going with here? And obviously one factor is the economics and it's a competitive market and things have increasingly moved in favor of the customers over time. Uh, but it's also a function of who can help me get my deal done, uh, who is going to have a robust policy with the minimum exclusions uh, because they've done thoughtful diligence and, and gotten to, to really have a, an informed perspective on the business and its risks. And, and those are key things that come up in every single situation and where we have a significant opportunity to influence the decision making.
2: Well, Brian and I actually think that the risks from company to company are especially pronounced in the COVID area, right? So we've been doing um, some sort of education around this to brokers and underwriters so that they can gain comfort with the fact that just as you were saying, you know, some companies are going to have a risk profile around COVID. And there are some companies that just by virtue of what they do, they're tech-based, everybody's working from home anyway. Maybe they're like an app company, as opposed to a food manufacturer or something else, like they're they're just not going to be impacted the same way by the risks. And so those are the companies that make a lot of sense to try to underwrite in this challenging time. So we we are completely aligned with that idea that the company risk profile from company to company definitely, it changes and it matters significantly when you're trying to underwrite the risks,
3: for sure. And that's a great point. And even within industries, uh, for example, within the healthcare industry, right. there have been some where they rely on inpatient visits or, or um, outpatient visits, uh, but, but you know visiting a facility, those have been hugely adversely impacted versus some of the life sciences companies have you know it's been a huge tailwind for their business and they're actually benefiting from it uh because they're in a space where uh, the effect of the pandemic was to create incremental demand and so that's where you can't just say okay we're gonna exclude everything you know exclude all healthcare businesses or all healthcare risks because you know you've really got to peel Back the onion, and it, it takes uh, both on the business side and on the legal side sophisticated advice to uh, inform uh, folks about that. the The other thing you see is um, a, as a result of the impact on of COVID on so many businesses. Um, you know, uh, some of our clients ask, "Well, can I get repa warranty insurance for this?" And what they're really asking for is more of a known issue, right. Right? <laughs> right. not not the purpose of RAPA warranty insurance. What pandemic? <laughs> yes, exactly.
2: <laughs> unknown, unknown.
3: Unknown. Yes, and so you know what we have to talk to our clients about is hey, you know, let's on un- let's unpack sort of what we're talking about here, and let's think about whether this is appropriately um, you know an insurable sort of issue or whether as is most often the case it's uh, something that requires a creative purchase price construct that allocates risk between the buyer and seller uh, based on some of the uncertainties and how they might play out and so mm-hmm. if you look at deals that are getting done now in this environment they're either businesses that have been mildly or are not at all impacted negatively or there are deals where there's a lot more complexity around the uh, purchase price and value allocation uh, provisions. Um, and, uh, you know, that is where a lot of the action to deal with the pandemic is and seems appropriate right. to be. Yeah.
2: So speaking of the pandemic, have you been seeing, we've been hearing and we've been seeing it ourselves that deals have really rebounded and there's more and more activity in the market in the last like quarter or so. Would you, are you seeing the same?
3: Yes, I, I yes. definitely think we are um, it, certainly the the uh, post Labor Day period has seen significant activity. Uh, there was actually a fair amount of activity in tech and life sciences deals, again, businesses that were not um, as impacted by the pandemic, uh, you know, even in the in the early summer um, you know, the, the stimulus certainly helped the Federal right. Reserve actions created macro environments that allowed people to be comfortable. Uh, I think what's weighing on people now is uh, we have a little event tomorrow. I'm not sure. Still
2: at all. Yeah.
3: Yes. And so uh, on the one hand, that's either driving transactions or are ca- causing them to, uh, to not happen, depending on your perspective. Uh, and then also, obviously, in, in the last month or so, we've seen an uptick in uh, the uh, COVID numbers in, you know, many areas right. of the country. And I think uh, in the absence of further stimulus, uh, concern is starting to creep in um, as to whether, uh, you know, that's going to have another, um, you know, dampening effect on activity. Uh, so it's, it's just very uncertain right at this moment. Uh, if my crystal ball was perfectly clear, I could probably uh, tra- trade in my law books for uh, you know a, a, a seat at the table in Vegas, and uh, you know I'd have
2: some questions for you if that crystal ball was working. So
1: <laughs> exactly. Right. Yeah. Well, I think that I think those are all excellent points, and certainly what, what we're seeing in the market as well, Neil. And I think just to go back uh, for a second to a point you made before, um, you know, about the exclusions, and and I think having worked as as side counsel, this was something I saw uh, from the underwriters, you know, sometimes you do the underwriting call and then you get, you know, 50 exclusions of which maybe three or four are really something that, that, uh, that we have to dive into. Um, And, you know, deals are usually happening on very fast timeframes, especially private equity deals. And so I, I agree. I think that making sure when you're working as the underwriting counsel and having, you know, let's just get to the chase and what are really the most important exclusions. And I think when that gets sent over to the buy side council, that, that really makes the process go much smoother, because they can have a better conversation with their client about what is really out there and, and what we have to really dive into.
3: Yeah, a- absolutely. I mean, you know, the the pace of deals Uh, You know, every day that goes by, a deal is at risk, and clients don't want to be in that situation. So there is a big premium for having knowledgeable uh, partners uh, in analyzing deals and coming up with structuring a wrap-and-warranty policy that's appropriate. And, you know, if I have to start with 50 exclusions instead of 5 or 10 that are much more in the fairway, you know i'm just not going to feel as great about that um you know about that partner as the ones who you know in in my job i try to make my clients lives easier right and to be able to have them have confidence in the policy and that it is a good tool to address their their situation and there's still some education going on around that despite the prevalence of the product uh, certainly, having, um, you know, having the most narrowly tailored yet appropriate exclusions is, is a key thing. And I'll, I'll give you a couple of examples. When we first started, healthcare companies in general, it was impossible to get any kind of coverage for healthcare regulatory issues because they were too hard to diligence uh, from the, the carrier's perspective. Um, in manufacturing, which I do a lot of deals in the industrial space you know, to just exclude everything to do with China is, you know, not that helpful where right. most o- often those companies have significant operations there or in India in a tech deal. And so, you know, I think as the, as the competition intensifies in the space, uh, there's going to be a premium uh, in terms of perceived service level uh, to those carriers who can um, get their heads around uh, the more complicated uh, and the more uh, nuanced uh, situations and, and refine the product to be tailored uh, to, to meet those needs and still be valuable uh, and fair to the carrier, obviously, but appropriate to give the buyer comfort that they're getting something for you know what they're paying in the premium.
2: And actually, I have a question for you about how you evaluate the different MBILs. So we sometimes see MBILs that are very detailed with heightened areas and potential exclusions, and then some others that are sort of light, but then it ends up having a lot of exclusions and heightened areas for diligence. So. When you're selecting between carriers, do you do you prefer to go with one that you have a sense like this is really going to be it unless something unusual comes up in diligence? Or do you have clients who push you to go with the NBILs that seem to be contemplating more limited number of exclusions and sort of take the risk? Who knows what's going to come up in that process?
3: Yeah, I mean, definitely. Uh, it's a good question. I mean, ultimately, it's the client's call. Uh, But they they rely on our advice. And I think there is um, certainly a preference to have people kind of uh, be clear up front and to um, and to sort of really only deviate from that if there are fact specific uh, items that come up in diligence in order to uh, justify, you know, the change. Right, right. And I analogize it a little bit, Jenna, to, uh, you know, it's sort of when a buyer is doing diligence for, on, a, on a company, uh, from the seller's perspective, when the buyer sort of says, hey, they've done their diligence, or they, you know, they think they're going to be at this level of indemnity or this level of, you know, purchase price. Um, you know, sellers don't like to be retraded on you know, uh, on things that, um, you know, come up later, uh, you know, unless there's a really good basis for it, in fact, and it really was an unknown thing uh, at the time. And, you know, it can be substantiated that, yeah, this, you know, looking at it fairly uh, deserves, you know, special treatment or exclusion or, you know, whatever the case may be.
2: Sure. That makes sense.
1: No, I think that makes a lot of sense. And, um, you know, I, I guess we can't agree more with you the, the importance of sort of having, uh, you know, the underwriting counsel who can be a good partner and who can, you know, be reasonable in these things. And like you said, be playing in the fair ways. And we know underwriting counsel who meet those descriptions. So uh, you can tell all of your clients yeah, that. You uh, so. They might be on this podcast. might be near you right now.
3: Right. Right. Exactly. No, but even from our side, we would much rather deal with somebody who is well-represented and sophisticated about this where we don't feel, you know, the reality of the world we operate in both on the deal side and in the wrap and warranty part of the deal market specifically, you're not going to blow fastballs by people, right? There's too many smart people working in this space. And, you know, it's like dealing with other law firms, I'd rather deal with uh, counterparts who are sophisticated and who are going to quickly get down to what actually matters what's reasonable what's practical also that are going to be solution oriented realizing that everybody's coming from a different perspective and representing a different interest Uh, okay fine that's great and and no is always an answer but uh you know clients want yeses to get to (laughs) the deals and so you know our job as advisors in the space is to try to help them find Um, paths to uh, solve issues and to narrow the gaps and and provide practical solutions. And, uh, you know, I think that holds with the rep and warranty uh, section of the deal marketplace as as much as any other part. And I've I've been heartened to see um, companies investing more in uh, developing a more robust Uh, advisor network to help them think through that. And it it comes up also when there are claims, Um, you know, having sophisticated uh, approach to claims processing and management, uh, so that those who are buying the policies feel like if, you know, in the unlikely event, but if they have a, a claim that exceeds the retention, uh, that there's going to be meaningful coverage there and, and that if it falls within the parameters of the of the policy that it will be that it will be covered. And uh, you know that's that's very important and, and having uh, having good advisors and having good uh, counsel to work through that with is you know I think is always helpful.
2: Well, we echo your uh, thoughts about having good counsel and if we right. can just pitch ourselves one more time we're really outstanding underwriting council very business oriented very goal oriented very sophisticated so we meet all of your uh checks all of your
3: apps check, check check no we're exclusions. Right here. that's no, right no exclusions
2: that's right so um we think this might be a good time to sort of transition to a little uh game that brian and i like to play with all of our guests here on the podcast so we call it uh, Once More Unto the Breach, which, get it? Ha, yes. Yep. Yeah. Um So, yeah. <laughs> that was I from mean, one of Brian. those
3: Shakespeare plays, I think. <laughs>
2: yeah, that is very good, though. It's very good. So the first uh, question we want to ask you is, what do you think the biggest change is that we're going to see in the rep and warranty market in the next 12 months, 15 months, something like that?
3: Oh, that's a good question. You know, I I think there will be continued pricing movement in favor of buyers. Obviously, we've seen the evolution where sellers have less skin in the game. Uh, But I I think one of the issues on the larger deals that I tend to do is that a lot of buyers look at the size of the uh, retention and conclude that they're never going to have a claim realistically that's going to outstrip that and right. so rather than having sort of a universal what was two percent and is now much closer to one percent kind of retention even with the step down to a half or three quarters after a year or 18 months or something right. i i think you're going to see even more targeting uh so multi-billion dollar deals might have something you know lower than that i don't know if you have seen that start already, but uh, you know that's an area where I think there's um, policies that are not being written that could be with some thinking around whether enterprise value is the, the right metric for a multi-billion right. dollar deal.
2: That's interesting. I don't know that we've actually seen movement on the retention, but we definitely have seen and heard from a number of our guests this the idea that pricing is in flux and it's going to change. And we, you know, we should be keeping an eye out for that for certainly in the next year or so. Would you agree with that, Brian?
1: Yeah, I know I would. I think that is a a very interesting point, Neon. I think also just speaks to, you know, what we like about this whole industry is there is a lot of innovation and creativity. Um, There's not a lot of set rules um, for better or for worse uh, in, you know, with so many markets, there's a lot of creative solutions to, uh, to a lot of different problems. So, yeah. so the second question you know we had for you is um, <laughs> somebody who uh, is at home and maybe in law school or thinking about a career in in M and A or, or representing uh, private equity firms. What would be your uh, biggest piece of career advice to somebody who might be interested in just getting involved in this uh, in this space?
3: Well, I, I think realizing that many of the clients in the space are business people, I think uh, getting an understanding of, of business and financial statements and the economics of transactions is important. It uh, doesn't mean you need to do an MBA necessarily, but I think just understanding that the lens that clients in all aspects of the M&A practice are going to look at things are going to be first and foremost, a dollars and cents uh, kind of analysis. And even when we're talking about very hard to quantify risks, and Brian, you and I did this uh, for many years together, right, we're ultimately driving to help our client understand some level of range of outcomes, Mm -hmm. and some level of probability to put up against those outcomes in order to kind of price what a risk is. And re- that means reducing it to to some level of dollars and cents. So I, I think for folks who don't already have that background, I think it's a very helpful way to, to, to you know, get smarter about it. And there's so much available online uh, that it's it's very easy to, um, you know, to, to self-teach a lot of what you need to know there. There's excellent classes that deal with accounting for lawyers and things like that. There's, uh, you know, investment banking courses, things like that. And in the pandemic where, you know, you might have a little bit more time than you otherwise would, other than listening to this podcast, folks should be thinking about ways to enhance the business acumen would be my my guidance.
2: That is very good advice. And now for our last question. So Neil, you all want to tell our listeners about how you spend a lot of time traveling back and forth between Chicago and Boston. We don't wanna cause any sort of city rivalry, but um, we wanna know what are some of your favorite things about each city?
3: Uh, well, I love um, the youth and energy of Boston. I, I think about uh, five, one in five uh, Boston area residents as is a, is a student. And uh, you know that just brings a lot of energy uh, diversity and excitement uh, to the city. Uh, I also love that it's a walkable city. You can uh, you can walk just about uh, anywhere in it. Um, you know, in terms of uh, Chicago, another wonderful city. Uh, the the amazing skyline and the architecture tours it lends itself to is uh, is incredible. Uh, but what what I love most of all is jazz. Uh, even though oh. I'm the most non-musical person in the world uh my favorite thing to do is to uh you know sit in a jazz club downtown with my wife on a friday night and uh uh hope that uh things aren't too active on the deal front between (laughs) nine and midnight
2: (laughs) right right
3: uh you know have a nice meal uh, a drink and uh you know listen to some of the great artists that Come through Chicago and play in in the amazing jazz clubs that are uh, that are here, and you know, along with that is the theater culture in Chicago, and uh, yeah. that that is also a favorite uh, weekend pastime for my wife and I.
2: Well, I don't particularly. Um like the weather on either of those cities I have to be honest they're both pretty cold in the winter
3: (laughs) so I've heard (laughs) yeah
2: yeah Yeah. Yeah. Brian do you have any major takeaways from those cities well the the the
1: the, the, this the scene that Neil just painted at the jazz club was like poetic so I think we will um all look forward to whenever the pandemic is over and we can perhaps have a podcast reunion at a jazz club in uh, Chicago. in Chicago in the uh,
2: summer, perhaps in
1: the summer in the summer when it's not cold for Jenna. So yeah, yeah, uh, <laughs> yes. that would sound great. So well, thank you very much, Neil, for joining us today. No, uh, thank you so Mr. much. Mr. Really, thanks appreciate. for having me, guys. This was fun. Yeah, really appreciate that, and, and just thank you so much for being on. I uh, yeah. really appreciate it.
3: A great work for you know all your leading uh, thought leadership in the space. Uh, it's been fun to to see. And, uh, you know, I rely on it uh, as I try to stay informed about the market for my clients. So uh, appreciate the the sharing of your thoughts and resources uh, in the community. It's, it's always uh, what's one of the best things about practicing in this space.
2: Well, Brian and I are going to both
3: put that in our performance evaluation. <laughs> Thank you. All right. Thanks very much, guys. Great Thank talking you. to you. Bye-bye. Great.
1: Thank you very much, Neil. And uh, this was another episode of Into the Breach. We appreciate you listening. And until next time.
0: Thank you for listening to Into the Breach. For show notes, additional resources, and links to the tools discussed on today's episode, please visit rwipodcast.com. The views and opinions expressed by Brian O'Keefe and Jenna Usenheimer in this podcast are their own, and do not necessarily represent the views and opinions of Seifarth Shaw, LLP, its partners, or its employees. The podcast does not provide legal or other professional services. This podcast is made available by The Lawyer Publishers for educational purposes only, as well as to give you general information and a general understanding of the law, not to provide specific legal advice. By listening to this podcast, you understand that there is no attorney-client relationship between you and The Lawyer Publishers. The podcast should not be used as a substitute for competent legal advice from a licensed professional attorney in your state. As defined in the State Bar of New York's Code of Professional Responsibility, this podcast is considered a form of attorney advertising. Prior results do not guarantee similar outcomes.